0: So this is Chief Judge Janet DeFiori. Over the past few months, the Gender Fairness Committee of the 3rd Judicial District, chaired by former Albany City Court Judge Rachel Kretzer, has produced a documentary about the pioneering women judges of the seven-county 3rd Judicial District. Nine groundbreaking judges were interviewed. May D'Agostino, Judge of the United States District Court for the Northern District of New York. Catherine Doyle, former surrogate of Albany County. Victoria Graffio, former judge of the New York Court of Appeals. Helena Heath, judge of the Albany City Court. Rachel Kretzer, former judge of the Albany City Criminal Court. Karen Peters, the presiding justice of the Appellate Division, Third Department. Beverly Tobin, former judge of the Albany County Family Court, Mary Work, former surrogate of Ulster County, and Deborah Young, judge of the Rensselaer County Court. Throughout the month of March, Women's History Month, we will share these interviews through our Amici podcast. I think you will find the interviews of these trailblazing women to be both enlightening and inspiring.
1: I was trying to uh, achieve passage of a piece of legislation that I had drafted, and for example I went into um, the office of the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in those days and um, was trying to talk to him about the merits of the bill, and he said, well, can't we talk about this over lunch? So I said, okay, and um again uh, we went out to lunch and and i was talking to him about the merits of the bill and he asked me out to dinner and i said as i always did when asked that question and we were in those days um i said uh, you're very charming and attractive but you're married and i'm in a relationship so no thank you and he said well and i quote well you can kiss that bill goodbye
2: Welcome to Amici, news and insight from the New York Judiciary and the Unified Court System. I'm John Carr. You just heard from the Honorable Rachel Crutzer, retired Albany City Court judge, as she describes an experience she endured, an experience which unfortunately was not that unusual in the not-too-distant past. Judge Crutzer, the first woman criminal court judge in the 3rd Judicial District, is one of several pioneering women judges who were interviewed in late 2016 and early 2017 for an oral history project sponsored by the 3rd Judicial District Gender Fairness Committee, which Judge Kretcher chairs. During Women's History Month, Amici is honored to present the audio portions of those interviews. The video will be utilized in a documentary, and please follow us on Twitter at NYSCourtsNews for updates on that. For now, however, let me introduce you to Judge Rachel Crutcher. Thank you, Judge. And first, when did you first consider becoming a lawyer, and why?
1: Well, I was a child of the 60s, and we were very idealistic. We wanted to change the world. Um, And then I had the opportunity to work for the state legislature while I was going to college and then in graduate school, and I saw the law could be a vehicle for social change.
2: Including social change and gender issues?
1: Including, and that was important to me way back then as well, including change in gender issues. Uh, The law was a vehicle for social change in gender issues as well as environmental issues and uh, other issues like the war in Vietnam that were very important to us in that day, at
2: that time. And when when did you start law school?
1: I started law school in 1974 after going to graduate school. And how many women were in your class, do you recall? Yes, I do. Um, I followed that closely, even then. Uh, 18% in my entering class, and by the time I finished, there were almost a third women. It was increasing very rapidly at that time.
2: Do you face any gender-type issues in law school? in talking about the mid-70s now, right?
1: No, in fact, um, I do not remember uh, that there were any gender issues or discrimination in law school. Um, By that time, we were uh, a significant part of the student body. I do remember that the top woman, the top person in our law school class was a woman. So, no, I don't remember any form of, gender discrimination whatsoever in law school. Were you anticipating encountering that when you got out? I don't know if I anticipated that. There were questions that we were accustomed to getting uh, at that time, and honestly, we didn't even think about it. But we were asked whether we uh, had any intention of having a family. That was a standard question, a standard interview question asked of women in the early and mid-70s. And I would respond that uh, I had no immediate plans to have any children. Uh, But I do remember one interview that stood out in my mind uh, because it was a little bit unusual. I was interviewing with a high-level assembly member for a job as his counsel. And he looked at my resume. I had graduated in the top of my class, law review. And he looked at my resume and he said, well, you have all the credentials. But he said, I have to tell you that I meet with my counsels after hours, after a legislative session in the evening. And I honestly don't think I could concentrate with a woman as my counsel. Now, that was, of course, sexist, but I have to give him a few points for candor anyway. But that's the kind of thing that you occasionally heard. Now people may still think those things, but they certainly don't say them. And then early
2: on did you need to balance family life and professional life?
1: I had my son um, when I was a bureau head at the Attorney General's office. And um, I remember we only had two months. As bureau heads we could only take two months maternity leave. If I had not been a bureau head, if I were a rank and file attorney, I would have been given six months. So I took my two months and um, then after that, I remember I wanted to continue breastfeeding. So I uh, would travel home every day at lunch to breastfeed my son until I could get him into a daycare center right near our offices. pretty much right down the hall, which was wonderful. And then I could see him every day at lunch and read to him and put him down for a nap um, and then go back to work. So that was nice. Early on, professional role models? Oh, yes. I was lucky enough to have many women judicial role models. Not too many women judges because, frankly, there were none in those days. But um, when Judge Kay came along, she became my number one role model, without question. Professionally, I did, however, have personal role models who inspired me greatly, and those were my parents. My dad was—he um, well, grew up very poor had immigrated to this country from Eastern Europe at the age of four, not speaking a language, and uh, growing up in a Jewish ghetto in Brooklyn, the youngest of six children, and he went on to get a degree in architecture from Harvard. And if he was bright, my mother was brilliant because she, she was the type of woman who answered all those jeopardy questions without hesitation uh, she was a Barnard graduate, a high school English teacher who, while raising three children, managed to earn all the credits for a doctorate in library science. And so they instilled in me the feeling that I could, if I worked hard enough, be anything I wanted to be, regardless of my job. Okay. Um, any... Particular impediments
2: early on. Well, wait, a let's let's go back over your career a little bit. You you started it. Was, was it Paul Weiss? Wild Gotchel. Wild Gotchel. Okay.
1: Yes, I began my career uh, at Wild Gotchel. I was very fortunate um, when I graduated uh, that there were opportunities. Women. I I was in the top of my class, which helped, but um, the Wall Street firms, the big Manhattan firms, had just begun to really open their doors to women. And except for the stodgy white shoe firms, they were accepting women as the same way they accepted men from law schools. And so, um, although the entering class of associates in Wild Gacha was primarily men. Um, they welcomed me into the firm and um, gave me all the same opportunities as the male associates.
2: Were you expected to dress
1: in any person, way other than men or behave in a different way other than men? Women in those days did have to prove themselves. People were looking at us. We were a little bit different uh, And um, so the eyes were on us. We felt that we had to prove ourselves. In terms of dress, um, there was definitely a code of dress for women attorneys. We had to wear skirts to court without question, which is a little ironic when you think that now uh, the majority of the judges of the Court of Appeals wear pantsuits every day to court. But in those days, it was a pretty strict, coat of dress for women.
2: Whose role was it? Was that just the, the culture, the firm, the judiciary? Who, who imposed that?
1: It was more or less understood that women had to wear skirts. I don't remember any judge telling me, but then again, I wore the skirts because I understood that that was required of that me was the culture. in court. Yeah.
2: And then, after a, a while, got you. What, what did you know
1: next? I actually took a half salary cut to go to the Attorney General's office to go into public service. And I um, was lucky enough to get a very good job at the Attorney General's office. Uh, Attorney General Abrams hired me, and um, he was very open to hiring women. And I would say hired as many women as men.
2: Any sort of gender issues that you were confronted with in that era, either in the office or in the court? You were primarily practicing. Was it it in court of claims work or supreme court work?
1: I practiced in supreme and federal court in the attorney general's office. That was. Exclusively, we did a lot of Article Seventy Eight work, Title Seven, Title Nine in federal court. Um, I was very fortunate to have a wide variety of cases uh, that I was given. And, uh, my memory of my days in the Attorney General's office is almost entirely positive. is
2: the increased presence of women impacted on the profession and the judiciary? I mean, right now, as you mentioned, the majority of the Court of Appeals is female. I don't remember how many are women are on the fourth department, but, but enough to make it a majority of some panels
1: anyhow. Mm. Well, women have made great strides in the profession since I entered the profession in the mid-70s. But uh, we are still only about 20% I believe, in the third department. And when you consider the fact that we're 51 or 52% of the population and um, well over a third of the bar now are women, we still have a long way to go in achieving equality on the bench. And women always were, uh, when I entered practice, steered to the family court. And... Um, And I, of course, resisted that, but um, there were very few women practicing in the criminal courts, in the county courts, local criminal courts, very few women. And now, both my public defender and um, my ADA are women of color. So things have definitely changed. However, on the bench, um, in criminal courts we still have a long way to go um, I was the first woman ever to serve on a criminal court bench in the entire third judicial district and that was only 11 years ago since then we have we now have one other uh, woman on the bench in Rensselaer County on the county court bench and um, In all those years, uh, it's amazing to me that we only have two women uh, sitting on criminal court benches, to my knowledge, in the entire third judicial district, even to this day. Why do you think that is? The rough-and-tumble world of the criminal courts, uh, I think, was thought to be unsuited to women and um, I remember when I began in my court as the first woman again ever to serve in that court. I remember walking through the door and encountering um, at the desk uh, an officer cleaning his high-powered gun and uh, automatic and then I walked past him. I heard the clanking of the doors to the cells below, the holding cells. I heard the defendants cursing. I I walked past my colleagues' chambers and saw the samurai sword that he keeps displayed right next to his desk. And um, I just, all the... Everyone there was male. The officers guarding us, the uh, the judges, um, everyone except the administrative staff was male, and it almost seemed like there was testosterone dripping from the walls in that courtroom, in that courthouse. Uh, and then I walked into my own chambers, and in my chambers. There were flowers all over the place from people who were kind enough to send me good wishes on my election to the bench, and um, it just seemed like an oasis. Those flowers contrasted with the rest of the courthouse It seemed like an oasis from uh, that macho
2: environment. Um, Let's talk about the election. How did you position yourself to be able to get a nomination?
1: Well, I had worked for many years for other female candidates, and that—that that was something that I—that is something that I recommend to young women um, if they want to learn how to get elected. It's good to work for somebody you believe in and help them get elected. Um, I did that, but I couldn't actively work in the Democratic Party because as an Assistant Attorney General we had certain ethical guidelines that prohibited us from doing that. Also I would have had to take a leave of absence to run. Fortunately, um, Mayor Jennings um, appointed me based on merit because I hadn't been able to do much for the party Um, and uh, After my appointment, of course, I had to run for office and I um, had friends in the reform camp and the regular camp, and so uh, just because I had worked with all of the factions of the Democratic Party over the years and was known to all of the factions of the Democratic Party, I was well positioned to avoid a primary.
2: Did gender play a role, positively or negatively, at that time? Was the mayor looking to appoint a female? Was was it an issue? Was was it an issue in any any way at all?
1: At that time, I don't know that the mayor was looking uh, for a woman. Um, I do know that my gender had had hurt me in the past. Uh, by then, we're talking only eleven years ago it was much less of an issue pro or con but when I first considered a career on the bench um, in the 80s there were, well, let me backtrack, there were no women on the bench in the late 70s when I entered the field of law, in the early to mid 80s, no women. Finally, um, we The Women's Bar, and I'm a past president, met with the party leaders and tried to make them aware that there were qualified women out there who wanted to be judges. And um, I, at that time, was not advocating for myself. I barely had my 10 years in that's required to be a judge. I was advocating for other women. But I remember the party leader who was very powerful and a longtime party leader at the time, um, saying, "Well, we offered it to May D'Agostino, and she said no." And I said, "Well, that's wonderful. She's she's a remarkably talented woman. That that's wonderful that you offered it to her. Um, the fact that she wasn't willing to take a pay cut in order to go into public service, you know, is unfortunate, but." We were flabbergasted. We were flabbergasted that the party actually believed that Mae Agostino was the only woman in the entire capital district qualified for the bench. But that's what they thought. Why? Uh, they're very, they were very old-fashioned traditionalists in, in those days. Um, there was a network most judges of the day went to the Christian Brothers Academy and they all knew each other in fact there were families they, you know there was They were families with many judges um, and it was a fairly closed network and especially closed to women now to complicate matters I was a known women's advocate so, if they were uneasy with women, they were certainly uneasy with women's advocates. So, I, I believe that it was not just my gender, but my advocacy that perhaps held me back.
2: Hmm. Now, what, why do you think they were
1: um, willing to consider May? Do you, do you think it's because in the courtroom so much, and
2: they, they were aware of right.
1: May is outstanding. May is outstanding. And um, even they, had to recognize that. She was such a well-known trial attorney, so successful. Um, I don't know how anyone could have said that she was unqualified for the bench.
2: I think I understand. So so at that point, and for a whole lot of years, there was one woman, one superstar litigator, and, it was right. an female, right. and all the judges knew her. I knew of her, and most of them—most of them had I mean, she appeared before in most of them. So, 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 I think I've i think I've the been way, the way it work, and then because she because she had come to their attention in that way, she was probably in their mind
1: the only way out there. Also, I think honestly they believed uh, that because they had offered it to a woman, they'd done their. They were part. off the hook. They were off the hook. They could wait another ten years. <sighs> Those were the days, and that was the way they thought.
2: fairly well, pretty early in your career. The uh, Court of Appeals, in its 130-year history or something by that point, had never had a woman sitting at the bench. And then 1983 comes and Muriel Cuomo puts Judith Kay on the bench. What did that mean to you and other women lawyers? Oh,
1: it meant the world. We were thrilled. We were ever so proud. It gave us all hope. Um, when I think back about Judge Kay, she was an icon. And um, I was fortunate to have her not just as a role model, but actually as a mentor. She took time out of her busy schedule to uh, advise and encourage me. I treasure the handwritten notes that she sent me over the years. And One of my fondest memories is of the day her portrait was unveiled, um, maybe five years ago, and uh, the joy of that moment was captured by a New York Law Journal cameraman. There's a photo of Judge Kay, Pat Buckland, and myself, gazing up at her portrait, and I was beaming. There was such a look of joy on my face, and it did capture my feelings at the time. I was so joyous that we now had a woman hanging on the wall, the portrait hanging on the wall, with all those men displayed in the courthouse I remember uh, the feeling of joy at seeing a woman's portrait hanging in that sea of male faces that adorned the courtroom, but also the fact that it was that particular woman who I so admired and adored, and that she would be forever gazing down on the court and presiding over the court that she loved.
2: Wonderful. Now, what did Judith Kaye's appointment mean to the Court of Appeals other than symbolically? Did she bring anything to the court that had not been there before other than the symbolic presence of a woman?
1: Judge Kaye brought much more to the Court of Appeals than just her symbolic presence as a woman. In fact, there are studies that have shown that the presence of a diverse judge, a woman, a person of color, on the bench actually affects the collective decision-making process. The New York, I think it was the Yale Law Journal, had a study entitled Female Judges Matter." gender and collegial decision-making in the appellate courts and it cited specific examples especially Title VII, uh, Title IX, the sex discrimination, the equal rights uh, cases. Um, To have a woman on an appellate bench not just gave that perspective one vote, but she was actually often able to persuade her colleagues.
2: Uh, could you talk a little bit about how the experience would have been differently? Um, basically, that being a judge and maybe particularly an appellate judge, is not simply a matter of mechanically or robotically applying applying the law to a certain set of facts, that a, that a perception managed. I mean, you, 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 you know where I'm mean. going
1: women on the bench um, provides not just a perception of equality it does provide actual equal opportunity for women, role models for our youth it inspires confidence in the justice system and most of all it promotes justice because women bring their different life experiences to the bench. Judging is not just applying the law to the facts, although that's of course what we try to do. We don't want to make law, we want to apply the law to the facts, but it isn't a robotic process. It's not a mathematical formula. It is something, if it were, a computer could be a judge. It is the process of being a human being analyzing the facts and interpreting the law based upon all of our experiences and everything that goes into being a human being
2: what would you like to say to the people that preceded you and not only recently but long back the, the people um. the people who blazed the trail that you were able to
1: pick up on I am so very grateful to the women who preceded me because whatever difficulties I encountered in the 70s paled by comparison to those experienced by Judge Kay, by Judge Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, by so many of the women who paved the way for the rest of us. It's really on their shoulders that we stand.
2: One of the things that jumps out at me is some of the early pioneers, and Kate Stoneman couldn't vote. (laughs) She had admitted, (laughs) but she couldn't vote for another 20 years. I know. But Let's now have a discussion and a message for those who succeed, not only in the next few years, but in the future. People people who hopefully won't be able to imagine the world you've described for us Mm. in the 1970s.
1: Well, what I would say to the future generation is don't let others define you. Follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Um, in my case, it was that I was led in certain gender stereotype directions like family law and so forth. And, and I resisted that because that's not where my heart lay. And even even in becoming a pilot I I resisted it I was told that I couldn't be a pilot women were not pilots in the 70s when I um, took flying lessons but I I pursued that so don't let others define you do what your heart tells you to do work hard there's no substitute for hard work and every step up that ladder look behind you and see if you can help somebody come up with you. The reason diversity on the bench is so important is that more cases are decided by judges than by juries. And we have become accustomed to um, discrimination issues when it comes to juries. Batson case and and all of the cases that followed uh, talk about how important it is to have a jury of your peers and to avoid any type of discrimination based on race, sex, any type of discrimination in the selection of jurors. But isn't it equally, if not even more important, to have judges who represent the population that we serve? Because, as I say, judges make most of the decisions, not jurors. Excellent and an example would be the Rodney King case I don't know how many people remember the Rodney King case uh, in California where a jury of whites found an African American um, had not been beaten even though uh, the videotape showed clearly that he had been beaten and um, from that stemmed a lot of the Decisions uh, concerning juries of your peers. Yeah. For, what, what were
2: the trials and tribulations of, of being a mother and being a, a practicing attorney in? We're talking eighties, seventies.
1: Mm. It definitely is uh, difficult to be a mother, especially in when I practiced uh, in the eighties when my son was born, because uh, I really had to put my career on hold. I kept the job I had, but any hopes of advancement were put on hold. Any thought of becoming a judge at that time was put on hold because it does take a lot of time to raise a child, and that responsibility, especially in those days, was placed primarily on women. Now, I've served on a number of panels um, geared to women, Talking about how to become a judge or about the role gender plays in being a judge. And often the question is asked of me can a woman have it all? Can she have children and a successful career? And then I look down the row of panelists and I see all these women, friends, and women I admire on the bench who've been such an credit to the bench, such wonderful judges, but at what sacrifice? The majority of the women on the bench in this area are either never married or divorced. Uh, The majority of the women on the bench have no children of their own, uh, or if they do, they're adopted. Uh, Those of us who do have children, I have one. Um, Generally it's only one. But uh, there's no question that the women who have achieved uh, success in this profession in my generation have done so at some sacrifice in terms of their family life. Do you see that changing? I do see it changing. I see now, I can think of women on the bench who... Uh, Are happily married and have two, maybe even three children. They're still rare, but uh, the young women, I'm starting to see that. And so I'm hopeful that that will change in the future as young men, as their spouses assume a greater role in childbearing. When I was in law school, um, I had some excellent professors and I had fond memories of several of them but unfortunately I didn't have women professors in the mid 70s none and um, it was we, women were just entering law school in numbers and there were very few female professors in those days uh, and I can't remember any women professors that I had. And I'm trying to remember if we had any in the school. We might have, but um, very rare. So young women in those days had very few role models. What was it
2: it like working in the legislature as a young woman in in the 70s?
1: Well, the positives were that it gave me a love of the law, um, but... (laughs) There were no women, or virtually no women legislators in the mid-70s when I was working there. And no women councils, none whatsoever. So all women, myself included, uh, were deemed to be secretaries. It was assumed, even though I was drafting the bills, and it was my role to draft and pass uh, bills for my boss, Senator Donald Halperin, everybody just thought it, I was his secretary. Now, secretaries are wonderful. I have great respect for secretaries, but that was it for women. We were, they were all secretaries. There were no other roles in the legislature for women. And I did encounter um, some sex discrimination in those days in the legislature. I I wasn't groped. Everybody talks about groping um, in this current climate because of the comments of a certain presidential candidate. But I do remember incidents where I was trying to uh, achieve passage of a piece of legislation that I had drafted. And For example, I went into um, the office of the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in those days, and um, was trying to talk to him about the merits of the bill, and he said, well, can't we talk about this over lunch? So I said, okay. And um, again, uh, we went out to lunch, and, and I was talking to him about the merits of the bill, and he asked me out to dinner, and I said, as I always did when asked that question, and we were in those days, um I said, uh, you're very charming and attractive, but you're married. And I'm in a relationship, so no thank you. And he said, well, and I quote, well, you can kiss that bill goodbye. And that was the kind of thing that we encountered. It made the job a little more difficult. It's sad to say, he went on to become a judge.
2: Thank you for listening to this edition of Amici. If you have a suggestion for a topic on Amici, call John Carr at 518-453-8669 or send him a note at jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime, stay tuned.